is an Odyssey original. This is KX and Death. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. The Grammys are back. Music's biggest night is Sunday right here in L.A. at the Crypto.com Arena. That's a mouthful. The Mm Crypto.com Arena. COVID isn't stopping anything this time around. And can anything stop Beyonce? She's up for the biggest awards. Some critics say she's been repeatedly snubbed in those categories. So will she be again this year? Or is this year going to be different? A balloon is leading to lots of static between the U.S. and China. We'll go in-depth into whether the countries can end this friction. And the latest jobs report surprises many economists, and it has us wondering if if the COVID pandemic is throwing off the usual economic models. California might be quickly losing its mountain lion population because of cars. We'll go in-depth into some recent findings about how common it is for cars to hit mountain lions. And a savory smell of heat and spice could be made into an official aroma in one state. We'll tell you what that smell is in what state. Yeah, there are a lot of states that actually smell, but this is going to be official. They have aromas they're known for. Yes, but this is going to be sanctioned and official. But we start with with the Grammys. Lindsay Havens is senior editor at uh, Billboard. Uh, Lindsay, thanks for being with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the Beyonce thing that we mentioned uh, in the beginning. Uh, There is a a bit of controversy, maybe a lot of controversy, about how she's such a successful performer uh, in many different ways. And yet there is this feeling that when it comes to, I guess, what category, best record or best song or, or one of those or maybe both, that she yep, consistently both an album both an album that she constantly loses out to white performers with the suggestion being that perhaps race has something to do with it do you buy first of all that premise and if so uh, what do you think is going to happen this time around I do think Beyonce has been snubbed in the past if you look she's had 88 nominations she has had 28 wins which is incredible and you know people say it's an honor to just be nominated but it's it's not as even there as I think it should be, given the work that she consistently puts out. But I will say, you know, all eyes are on the narrative of Beyonce versus Adele again this year. The two competed in all of the big three categories, record, song and album of the year back in 2017. Um, and that was when Adele had 25. Beyonce had her incredible record Lemonade. And I just think that, you know, it's people have competed multiple times in Grammy's history before. But to have two superstars have albums out yet again that are nominated yet again. And if you all remember in 2017, when Adele did win for Album of the Year, she basically spoke directly to Beyonce saying that Lemonade should have won and that she didn't really think that she deserved the award. Um, so I, I guarantee, you know, if if for whatever reason Adele does win again, she doesn't want it. <laughs> I don't even know if she would accept it. Well, this comes to some very shaky ground here because you've got the Susan Lucci effect, right, with the uh, daytime Emmys. Susan Lucci nominated many, many times and uh, not winning for a long time. And people said, oh, she's being snubbed. Well, uh, you know, I don't know if you could find discrimination there. But, uh, you know, these these charges are, are kind of being hinted at for the Grammys. And black artists, at least as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, do win Grammys, do win a lot of awards. And Beyonce herself has won a lot of awards so uh, run some numbers by me and, and convince me that uh, maybe beyonce is being snubbed and it might have something uh, some nefarious intent 
I, I really, I don't know. I mean, people have issues with the Grammys for, for many different reasons. Um, but I think that's why people tune in. It's controversial year after year. You know, you do have artists like Drake who say that they're not going to attend. Um, but then you have an album like Mr. Morell and the Big Steppers by Kendrick Lamar, which is also up for album of the year. Uh, you have special by Lizzo. You know, you do have these artists that are being recognized. Mary J. Blige is up for album of the year as well. Um, so it, it's hard to say, but I, I do think that year after year, the Grammys do elicit some controversy for, for better and for worse. It gets people talking, but again, you know, Beyonce has 88 nominations. It's not like she's been entirely left out of this. No. And, and, and I was going to say too, I, I mean, you know, I guess if you are a new emerging artist, you can make the argument that awards, whether it's in, in recordings or let's say the Academy Awards for a film, if you're, if you're just sort of beginning your career, I suppose you can make the argument that these awards are, are terribly important or could be terribly important. But when you're at the stage of, of somebody like Beyonce, I mean, she's got more money than she knows what, she, what to do with. She has more awards than she can probably fit even into her large homes. So does it really matter at the end of the day if she wins or doesn't win another one? I mean, she's still a superstar. Her fans are going to love her no matter what, and she's still going to rake in the dough. Absolutely. I do think with an album like Renaissance that is so celebratory of the queer black community of house music of, you know, underground raves. I do think that it's, it speaks to a larger conversation of it's not so much about Beyonce at that point. It's about a bigger community that sees her winning an album of the year as their win as well. So you're saying it's, so you're saying it's representative in this case. Exactly. Exactly. You know, does Beyonce alone need the win? I don't think so, but do her fans and all of the people that she helps give voice to? I think that's really what the issue is here is that these people feel like they've been waiting, you know, her whole career and that Renaissance of all of her previous albums, everyone is such a statement, but Renaissance really, I think, got people back on their feet and back out of their homes. You said at the top here, you know, it's a, a maskless award ceremony that we're coming up on. Um, COVID is apparently gone with this one. And I really do think that, you know, Renaissance just sort of helped people celebrate themselves and also being outside again. So it, it does seem to represent something much bigger than just her. All right. Thank you. Uh, Lindsay Haven, senior editor at Billboard. I, I can't see it. You probably can't see it either. But there's a balloon and it is threatening to pop relations. I see what you did. There, yeah. And yeah. between the U.S. and China, the U.S. is accusing China of uh, floating a spy balloon over the United States. China says, no, it's just a weather balloon, and it happened to kind of drift off course. Well, either way, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Anthony Blinken quickly uh, canceled his upcoming trip to China. Matthew Schmidt is a professor of national security, international affairs, and political science at the University of New Haven. He's worked with the Senate and House Armed Services Committee and members of Congress as a consultant on strategic planning. Matthew, thanks for being with us. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure to be the resident to carry it on gas bag. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> very good. Uh, so Rob and I were talking during the the break, you know, if the Chinese wanted to spy on us, Rob asks. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Rob. No. But you, but you did ask. Yes. Yes, you, you did ask. It was rhetorical, but you yeah, asked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why wouldn't they just use a satellite where we wouldn't as easily detect it? Why a balloon that is clearly visible because people are taking pictures of it? I replied to Rob 
I thought perhaps it's because the Chinese want to make a statement and show us that they can come over us, just as we're at the moment beefing up our presence in places like, say, the Philippines. So what do you think? I think you're uh, right. Ah, okay. uh, they there can, you go. They Once use, again. They can use, we'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they can use satellites. They can use TikTok. Uh, there's lots of ways that they can spy on us. And there's no particular advantage gained by using the balloon. And uh, most people are saying that this is a, a classic power game where nations use kinetic force uh, to, to change political conditions, to change political dynamics. What do you make of the uh, Air Force's unwillingness to uh, shoot this thing down? Because uh, as I understand it, President Biden wanted it brought down, because why leave it up there? But the Air Force said it might cause some damage or hurt some people on the ground. Uh, how big of a balloon are we talking about, and would it really hurt somebody on the ground? Yeah, I think it was uh, General uh, Milley said that this thing is the size of three uh, school buses. And he said, look, it's just not worth the risk of uh, shooting this thing down and having it go through the roof of a kindergarten. So uh, they were being overcautious, uh, saying that the uh, the espionage risk was far lower uh, than than the risk to uh, Americans. OK, so now let's go back to what we started the conversation with. So we're beefing up our presence, joint exercises, pumping uh, tens of millions of dollars more into military bases in the Philippines to show the Chinese that we're going to maybe come to the rescue of Taiwan if the Chinese try to make a move there. They send a balloon, as you put it, I think, or as the general put it, the size of what, three, did you say, uh, buses, school buses, uh, sailing over the U.S. for all the world to see. So what's the next move and who makes it? Well, we made the next move. Uh, Secretary oh, Blinken decided the trip. that he was, yeah, yeah, he was going to cancel the trip and and not go. So that's us saying we're we're not going to be bullied, we're not going to be intimidated here. And the next move uh, is that the tensions uh, stay high, and we generally would wait until a moment uh, somewhere down in the future here, a few months from now, maybe a year from now, where there's a way to um, you know deflate, haha, the tensions again, and and try to get back yeah. to some kind of dialogue. But, but, on uh, on the economy and on Taiwan. But but how important is it that that so he decides not to go? I know you know when I would get into uh, years ago arguments with like family members if they decided to cancel a trip to see me I'd go great don't come. I mean how much of an issue is it that he's not going? It's a big slap in the face because it denies China uh, a, a moment on the world stage with the United States, which is still highly valued. It denies China a chance to embarrass the United States or to push the United States around in those negotiations. It took its chance to try to, to try to push us around with this balloon. Uh, and it failed because the United States essentially won a PR battle today uh, and turned this back on the Chinese. Uh, very quickly, are tensions ramping up to uh, something bigger here? And is it possible that the United States in the back rooms for intelligence offices fears that China may indeed be more aggressive and may indeed make a move on Taiwan. Yes, uh, but we have been thinking that for, for quite some time right now, and the United States uh, maintains its readiness to defend the island. And so this isn't really any different than any other escalation. These things have gone in cycles up and down for a number of years, and there's no reason to think that this is any different than, than any of the others. By the way, you said something in, in passing that, that I have to remember because it is actually funny about how we're being pushed around by a balloon. <laughs> <laughs>
That is kind of funny. I got nothing. I got nothing. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Matthew Schmidt, Professor of National Security, International Affairs, and Political Science at the University of New Haven. All the money we spend on military and and we're being pushed around by a balloon. Uh, Is it an animal balloon? No, it's just a balloon. A big one, but Mm -hmm. a balloon. When we come back is the COVID pandemic making economic predictions pointless. Uh, right now, though, a lot of economic models and predictions recently have not gone as expected. Uh, look at today's jobs report, for example. Uh, 517,000 jobs added last month, even though the Federal Reserve is working to cool down the job market and slow down inflation. Now, this comes as predictions of a full-blown recession have not yet materialized. With us is Beth Ann Bovino, Chief U.S. Economist at uh, Standard & Poor's. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, my first question is going to be this. Uh, the pandemic basically upended everything, and has that thrown some of the standardized economic models and standardized predictions based on data out the window? Oh, my apologies. So here thing. she is. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, we, thought, we, we missed the first part of the answer there. Yes, we thought you jumped out of the window, yes. but you're there. <laughs> you're here. You're there. Okay. <laughs> Um, the uh, in terms of the in terms of the impact from uh, so the, the jobs market is incredibly strong. There's several factors, and we mentioned the pandemic factor. One is that there's still a lot of people who are out of the workforce. Either people retired early because of the pandemic and have not come back. Uh, then there are people of prime age who have are taking care of young children or elderly elderly parents and still can't get back to the workforce. Uh, or choose not to, for whatever the reason, uh, the labor the labor force uh, is just not that many people to take the jobs that people that businesses are looking for, and businesses are struggling to meet that demand. Yeah, but I, but I think, uh, and, and correct me, Rob, if I'm wrong. I think where Rob was going though with that, and, and I think it's an interesting thought here, is when we get all these predictions, whether it's the jobs or inflation. You know, presumably experts are making these predictions not out of thin air, but they're basing it on looking at historical uh, data and how things happen for different reasons over the decades. But I guess the question is, is the pandemic a global phenomenon so unusual? I mean, the last one we had was 100 years ago with the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu. Is it such an unusual event that experts really are at a loss to compare what's happening now with anything in recent memory. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I would say that, you know, to try and to try and measure the impact on the jobs market of all the people who left the workforce to measure the impact on the unemployment rate, which reached close to 15 percent during the pandemic and now is at a 54 year low uh, how can how can a model really uh, account for that? But I do have to say the last recession was also something that you know broke all boundaries as well, the Great Recession. So, it's, so I guess uh, the pandemic is not alone. So with all these predictions of a recession on the way, uh, how much credence should we give those? If, if some of the models are kind of upended right now, uh, should we look at predictions of a recession with a jaundiced eye or say to ourselves, well, it's coming. It might come later than we thought, but it's coming. Well, I think that it's, you know, you don't just look at models in, ter- in, in order to determine what the, you know, what could be coming. Uh, so, for example, uh, we're looking at, you're seeing a lot of announcements of people, of businesses pulling back in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, layoffs. 
in certain sectors that are, have been impacted by uh, the higher interest rates. And keep in mind, the Fed policy, Fed's interest rate policy acts with a lag. We're seeing the, we saw the impact on the financial markets. That's the first to go. We've, we've seen the impact on interest sensitive uh, sectors like housing, which is in a, in a recession, as well as some technology and other interest rate sensitive uh, industries. That hasn't yet spread throughout the economy yet. And I think that's, that's what the question is. When will it hit? We do expect a recession in our base, baseline, a very shallow one. The question is, how long will it take to get there? I think it will happen in 2023. It's just when is the question. So, and, and, and I don't mean this uh, at all, so don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean this with any disrespect for any experts. But is is the actual answer that most experts probably should give to almost any question now about what's going to happen with the stock market, with the labor issue, with inflation, with recession, is the proper answer really, I don't know. <laughs> it's always an estimate. Yeah. It's always an estimate. Um, but the thing is, it's always an estimate. That's true. Um, all you can say is you're taking an educated guess on what could happen. But I have to say that jobs market is incredibly tight. Uh, and it's not just that one report. Many have been incredibly tight. And that also comes to question that the Fed's interest rate policy, the, as gr- aggressive as it was, hasn't maybe been aggressive enough. Could we expect the Fed to ramp up uh, rate hikes later on? And that's also a, some, a concern going forward. All right. Thank you, uh, Beth Ann Bovina, Chief U.S. Economist at uh, Standard & Poor's, for joining us today. See, I always found that just if you just say, I don't know, yeah. it, it, it's like I get in an elevator. Somebody comes in and they go, is this going down? I go, I don't know. Yeah, but if you're, you're paid, can't get into trouble then. if you're paid to be an expert, yeah. you, you can't always get away with I don't know because they won't they won't have you back on the on the uh, cable news TV show. So you just make stuff up? Yeah, exactly. Ah, OK. I've got it. I've got it sussed out. See, I didn't know that. See, another thing I didn't know. When we come back uh, later, not too much later, because well, you're not going to want to hang around for hours. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just when we say later, you know, let's be honest. Later, we, yeah, we're Define talking later. A few minutes, you know, that's all. You're listening. KNX in depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Los Angeles will honor the Mountain Lion P22 tomorrow at his celebration of life ceremony at the Greek Theater, and captivated uh, the city for years before he had to be put down. Yeah, wildlife experts have been raising concerns for years now about the shrinking mountain lion population here in California. Some new findings from UC Davis show 535 mountain lions were hit and killed on roads and highways in California. That was just from 2015 to 2022. Now, some scientists suggest the big cats might be getting killed faster than they can reproduce. Fraser Schilling is director of the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis. He's actually out of the office and in the field right now doing some research. Fraser, uh, watch out for cars if you're out there. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? All right. So uh, this seems to be a huge problem uh, for both motorists, but more particularly, I guess, for mountain lions. What do we do about it? Yeah, so there's one of the first things is just knowing where to act and the number of places we're going to have to do something and the kinds of things that can work. And we know all of that. We have the information telling us where these conflicts are occurring Uh, We have the resources, obviously. We have a lot of money in California. A lot is spent on transportation. And we know how to build fencing and wildlife crossings, which are the fundamental pieces in solving this puzzle. 
Is development getting out of hand uh, because the interface between wildlife and human life is is getting smaller and smaller, it appears. And, yeah, you can put up fences and everything, but we're encroaching on uh, land that these big cats used to roam on. Uh, maybe should we start looking at ways to optimize uh, their area while uh, protecting what development we do want to put in and maybe think twice about where we want to develop? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's been a problem in California for a long time. Uh, and it's jo- kind of joined at the hip with the car culture. You know, they go together as building suburbs away from places of work uh, in order to have the car um, manufacturing industry do well and the petroleum industry do well. And that separation is really the key here because that means we're developing habitat for a variety of species, including mountain lions, and then we're driving long distances to work, which then puts those same animals in danger from being hit by a car. So it's really a twofer and in a bad way for mountain lions and other wildlife in California. Phil, it really doesn't sound like there's a workable solution, does it? I mean, we're not clearly stopping from building and encroaching on the territory that these animals live in. They certainly uh, have no reason. uh, I doubt it by evolution. They're going to learn very quickly to avoid cars. It's going to take quite some time until they get the hang of that one. So there is no real solution, is there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it starts just like an AA meeting, and for those of you, <laughs> wait, wait, how, how, how did we get? How did we get from? I want to know how we got from mount, from mountain lions yeah, yeah, to yeah, AA meetings. But you know, we are we have addiction. We have addiction ah, to okay. getting what we want. We have addiction to driving, and those two things are, are really critically damaging. And so it starts with recognizing there's a problem, and there's there's a couple of different problems uh, that we can recognize. One is that. We don't have a state, despite our reputation, uh, you know, in the the rest of the country, we don't have a state that has strong regulations protecting wildlife as part of the environment or ecosystems. We do have good environmental regulation when it comes to protecting humans, but not when it comes to protecting nature. And that's that's really a... That's a malpractice in a way, you know. I mean, the the state does have legal responsibility uh, in code and regulation for wildlife, but really doesn't exercise that responsibility very often. And on top of the problem of more cars driving where these big cats prowl around, you've also got the issues of uh, uh, climate change and uh, drought, which drives some of these animals into other areas looking for uh, food and and water where they weren't before. And that's also a danger. How much more of a how much danger does that add to the existing problem? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And it's not just driving the mountain lions, it's driving their prey to go towards where there's resources, and then the mountain lions, of course, follows. And then you get situations like we just had in the Bay Area where a kid was attacked, and those mountain lions are not, they're not looking to be near people. They don't like to be near people, um, but they do need to get food. They do need to disperse. They need to find a mate. They have to do all those things, and we keep getting in the way of it, and then we blame wildlife. We blame nature. And that's really the, where responsibility comes in. You know, recognize there's a problem, take responsibility for it. And I think we can do it. You know, I'm still optimistic, even this far along in my career, that we as humans can learn. And this, I mean, this conversation right here is one of those moments, right? It's, it's helping to learn what's, what's the problem and what can we do about it. Yeah, but the mountain lions aren't taking part in it. And they're not listening to us, yeah. I don't think. Right. And and that gets back to something. It, whenever there's a survey of the public saying, how much do you care about nature? How much do you care about wildlife? Do you want these things to go away and go extinct? The answer is always no, a resounding no. Across the blue to red spectrum, nobody wants to be responsible for that. No one wants to see that happen. And no one wants that for their kids. 
But what we have to do is grab the bull by the horns and say, well, what are the things that have to happen? Number one, we have to regulate land use like it matters for nature. We don't do that. We have to regulate traffic like it matters for nature. We also don't do that. And taking those steps and those hard steps, the tradition is to put that in regulation. I think that's an appropriate place for it. Um, and it reflects our desires as a society. If you don't mind me asking, because we said it in the setup that you're out in the field doing research, what exactly are you doing? Or are you, or are you going like to the supermarket? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, today happens to be, um, I have a series of cameras that monitor sea level rise over very long time periods. Uh. Totally unrelated. But tomorrow I'll be out in an area where we're um, we got a picture of a mountain lion in the East Bay for the first time in a long time uh, near a highway. So it's, in, it's, it's near one of those hot, spots, re- hot spot regions we were talking about. And um, so I'm taking some students out there, and that's actually related to wildlife and, and how we get them safely across highways. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Fraser Schilling, director of the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis. Well, you know, um, we've all heard of states that have symbols like, you know, uh, official flower. Right. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. or maybe a, a tree mm-hmm. or a, a bird. Yeah. Uh, California, we have an official state rock. Yeah. We do. Yeah. We actually do. We have a, a, a rock. Yeah. It's a I, pet rock. It, but, well, it's a rock. Yeah. But, it's, but we have one. I don't know why, but we, we do. Well, New Mexico might top that. Yeah. It, it is considering having a boulder. A boulder. <laughs> what? What? No. An oh. official smell. Something a little more ephemeral. Ah. Uh, and we're going to find out what that smell is. With us uh, is uh, Travis Day, executive director of the New Mexico Chili Association. I have a feeling that's a hint. And the New Mexico State Senator Bill Souls, who wrote the bill to create an official aroma. Thank you both for joining us. And uh, this question to both of you, and you can both answer in unison because that would be cool. What is the official aroma going to be? Every year in the fall, when it's chili season, and we all smell the aroma of chili roasting at the grocery stores. We all roll our windows down, take a big breath. It makes us smile because it's very unique, and we all love our green chili here. It's an aroma that definitely uh, every New Mexican knows very well. So, so the idea is 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 what? Are you going to like have the smell of sweet? roasting chilies in like an aerosol and spray around the the state or what's the idea well where this is uh, senator bill souls where this came from i'm a teacher and i was out working with some fifth grade students at one of the elementary schools and we were going through the various official symbols for the state of new mexico and new mexico also has some other chili related ones we have an official question which is red or green do you want red enchilada sauce? Do you want green enchilada sauce? Uh, but the students were asking, well, do we have an official aroma? And that very quickly moved into let's make the aroma of chili roasting the official aroma of New Mexico. Uh, it certainly is very emotional to New Mexicans. Almost everyone I talk to when they say this go, oh, my gosh, of course we ought to have that. They have a big smile on their face and proceed to tell stories about how much that means to them and the emotional attachment that we have to to our chili here in New Mexico. Yeah, but Bill, I mean, as I understand it, no other state has to date, uh, no no state, I don't think, has an official aroma. Did you ever think that maybe there's a good reason for it? I think just nobody else has really thought about it. <laughs> and most other states don't have an aroma that is ubiquitous to the state culture and emotions like we feel about our chili here in New Mexico. 
All right, uh, Senator, I'm going to ask you a direct question, and I, I demand an honest answer. I'm going to put you up against you the wall here. Uh, you said you were talking to fifth graders, and that's kind of where this idea came about. I want a direct answer and an honest answer. What other smells did some fifth graders <laughs> recommend to you? And be honest. I, I absolutely will be honest. Uh, the students, as we discussed it, some of them talked about the smell of rain on the desert, on the desert, oh, Piso, which also nice. is very unique in New Mexico. Yeah. Some others talked about, I'm up here in Santa Fe right now, and the smell of the pinon fires in, in Santa Fe are also very recognizable in this part of the country. But the students quickly re realized that those were only parts of the state that had those smells, where the smell of chili roasting in the fall is across the entire state. Okay, uh, I can honestly tell you that if you had asked me for an idea of an official state smell when I was a fifth grader, I would have come up with something different. That's because you're weird. Because I'm weird and because <laughs> I'm always trying to be funny. Travis, can I ask you a question? I, I, it's always hard. In fact, it is hard, uh, maybe impossible, but I'm going to ask you anyway to describe an odor. But how do you describe what what the smell of roasting chilies smells like if somebody hasn't smelt one before? Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the smell of roasting chili again means something to every one of us as New Mexicans. And I think the senator put it best that each of us have what we like to call our chili story. Um, it's a part, you know, of our culture and, and being able to say what chili meant. Um, you know, it's it's a smell that's hard to describe, uh, but once you smell it, you know exactly what it is and you'll never forget that smell. Um, you know, to me personally, the smell of you know roasting green chili just brings me back to, you know, times as a boy working with, you know, my grandmother and grandfather roasting chili there in Hatch, New Mexico. Um, you know, so it, there's just a lot deeper meaning than uh, just being able to describe the feeling. There's just a lot of memories that come with that smell. It's funny. My, my memory of, with my grandparents in New York growing up were paint chips. <laughs> how, many, how many of those did you eat? <laughs> you get smell paint all the time. Bill, can I ask you a, a question, though, too? I, I mean, to be really serious for a second here, uh, isn't part of this a strategy for uh, attracting tourists, right? I mean, uh, you lose out when it comes to the uh, quantity of tourists to nearby Colorado and having something like an official aroma and getting people to come to New Mexico to maybe smell and I presume taste uh, roasted chilies, uh, isn't the hope to try to lure more people there? Uh, certainly that is part of it is it's very much into the New Mexico marketing and tourism uh, certainly supports our chili farmers uh, at New Mexico State University. There's a chili institute that studies chili I was talking with the associate dean in the College of Agriculture down at New Mexico State, and he's actually going to try and get some of his researchers to try and isolate the particular molecules that are unique to the smell of chili roasting. Because as you mentioned, I think sort of in the in intro is if we can figure that out, we can start selling candles that have that this unique aroma as some of the marketing here in New Mexico. But it certainly is part of tourism and marketing. See, I knew it. Aer aerosol versions yeah. of, of roasted chili. Yeah. Can, can I get a, a cut of that? Because I, I helped create that idea. <laughs> exactly. And he's not a fifth grader. <laughs> Six. Yeah. Sorry, Six, but actually. that idea has already been out there, and we're oh. already working on it. And the fifth graders actually <laughs> came up with that also when we were talking about it. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Travis Day, Executive Director of the New Mexico Chili Association, New yeah. Mexico State Senator Bill Souls. What should... Uh, yeah. Yeah. An official state aroma of California be, if we if we had one. 
<laughs> oh, uh, I, I would think burning rubber. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What is the smell of a traffic jam? Maybe but, some diesel, maybe some gas fumes. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. He said that, that the idea, you know, that, that I was talking about, that they're fifth graders. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that I, I can match a fifth yes. grader. Yes. Fifth graders have nothing on my friend Charles Phelps. Absolutely not. That's it for KNX In-Depth. We'll be back, uh, I was going to say tomorrow at 1 p.m., but no. No, we're not here tomorrow. We're going to be back on Monday at 1 p.m.